Amen. If you want to open up your Bibles, today we're in Mark's Gospel. Next week we're continuing our series on the gifts of the Spirit. Um, But as is the custom at this church, we like to keep a regular verse-by-verse study going as well. As a topical study, we think that's good for us all. So we're going to be in Mark 13, verses 1 to 13 today. And I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, so give you a moment to find that in your Bibles. I'm going to put the verse up on the screen as well for you. That's it, chapter 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you as we come to your word that you work by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to make this word become profitable to us. This isn't just like reading any book, but this today is worship. Every bit as much as when we sing, hearing your word and being ministered to by the word is an act of worship. And so, Lord, help us today to focus. Help us today to give reverence and honor to your word as we come to it. Lord, I pray, help me to communicate it properly and truthfully without getting in the way of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A quick outline of this passage. The passage divides neatly into three parts. Verses 1 and 2, the first part of this passage. 
they entailed the destruction of the temple, or Jesus' prediction that the temple would be destroyed. That's verses 1 and 2, the destruction of the temple. The second part of this passage is verses 3 to 8, which I've called the birth pains, the birth pains, where the four disciples asked Jesus, what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus gives them a number of signs. So that's part two, the birth pains, verses 3 to 8. And then the third part is found in verses 9 to 13. And this really is talking about the church in those times, the persecuted church. And so it's a neat division into three parts today. So I'm going to cover each part, hopefully equally, those three parts. But before I dive in, I want to just make a few things clear. This passage is called the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. And it's covered in three of the four Gospels, in Matthew in Luke and in Mark. And it's an incredible piece of scripture. It's a passage where Jesus is prophesying about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem and indeed other things that maybe are yet to come. It's a very deep passage. It's an incredible witness to the divinity of Christ in that we know that the Gospel of Mark which was read to people in Rome, to Christians in Rome, all of what Jesus is saying in this passage was future to those who first heard it. We've got to remember that, that when the initial letter, the book of Mark, was read out, the temple in Jerusalem still stood. Jerusalem as a city was uh, still as it was in the time of Jesus, more or less. So everything we read in this passage and everything we read in the corresponding passages was still future to the Christians who read it first. It's only now that we look back in our time that we know that Jesus' words did ring true, were true, and were true predictions of what would happen in Jerusalem. But also this passage is one of the most controversial passages in the whole Bible. And it's not easy, and I want to say that right now. As I've been studying for this passage and reading and reading and reading and listening to many different sermons, It's only illustrated to me more and more how challenging this particular passage is. So I want to say that to you. Don't worry if you're feeling the same as I'm feeling. Um, Oh my goodness, this is is not easy stuff. One of my favorite pastors even began his message by saying, you know what, guys, I, I want to say on a certain level, I don't really know exactly what Jesus is talking about in every part of this passage. And that's my favorite pastor who I listen to every week. And he's a much, much cleverer man than I. So I'm going to do my best to work, work through this passage with you. I'm going to give you some of what I think it's meaning. Um, but there are many other people out there that might have slightly different takes on this. Um, but I would say this, that what we're getting from it, at the very least, um, is that Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. I want you to have first century lenses on first before you have end times lenses on. That's the best way to come and read this passage. I do believe that as many other prophetic passages in the Bible, this has both an initial near-time fulfillment and a distant end-time fulfillment. I believe it's one of those passages. But if we have our first century lenses on to ask the question, well, what would have this meant to those who first heard it, I think we'll go far in understanding it 
we'll have a better chance of understanding it rather than superimposing our own end time views onto this passage and forgetting what it may be meant to those who first heard it. I think many over the years, having read a lot of commentaries on this passage, many, because of the great challenges in it, have tried to iron out some of the difficulties with mixed results. Um, so to tell you what's difficult about this passage, because we're going to do three segments on uh, this particular chapter, essentially Jesus, this is what Bertrand Russell felt anyway, who's an atheist philosopher, and he wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. And this particular chapter was the one that he pointed out to say, this is why I'm not a Christian. This is why I'm not a Christian. He says, look, Jesus predicted that he would return before the end of the generation. And he says this to his disciples. Now, a generation is 40 years according to the Jews. And Jesus didn't come back. So according to the Bible, Russell said, Jesus is a false prophet because he predicted something that didn't come to pass. Therefore, we can't trust the Bible. We can't trust Jesus. So I don't want you to be under any illusions at all how challenging this passage is. And I want you to resist the temptation to iron out the difficulties by stretching the way that you interpret it. Okay, that's the temptation, isn't it? And that's what many have tried to do, is massage the passage in order to fit what we need it to say. I, think it, I don't think it falls. I don't think there's a problem here, ultimately. But I, I don't want to say that it's easy to understand this. And I want for us to sit a little bit under some of the challenge of this passage. I think that's good for us to do. So, let's look at the first section, verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus is exiting the temple. He spent time in the temple, of course, debating with the Sanhedrin, which was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. He spent time deliberating with them, and now he leaves the temple. He leaves the temple. Now, in Mark's gospel, he never goes back into it. This is symbolic in the Gospel of Mark of Jesus having completed his work in the temple. As he comes out, he reasons. He's having reasoned with the scribes and the Sadducees, the Pharisees. As he comes out, one of his disciples, we don't get to know who, draws his attention to the buildings around the temple. Look at these magnificent stones. Look at these buildings, Jesus. Clearly, this disciple hadn't been listening to anything Jesus had been saying for the last day or so, as Jesus clearly was not very impressed with the temple when he had first arrived in it. He looked around. Do you remember? Jesus came in, a triumphal entry. He looked around and went away. He was not impressed by the show of religion, but this disciple was amazed at the sight of the temple. And well might he be. I think if you and I could see the temple as it was, we would be amazed. How many of you have been to Jerusalem today? Well, not today, but recently. In your lifetime. Unless we've got any time travelers, no one's been there today. But now, what we see is, of course, a platform... And we see some of the remainder of one of the temple walls, but we don't see the temple. We don't see what the disciples would have seen then. And so it's hard to imagine now, looking at Jerusalem today, why they were so amazed at the sight of this building. 
But what we read in Josephus, I would recommend, this is a great companion to Mark chapter 13. There's a historian, a Roman historian named Josephus. And he wrote a book called The Jewish Wars. And in fact, you can actually get, I bought this, Derek and I went into a little bookshop in town and I found a copy, didn't I, of Josephus's um, The Fall of Jerusalem. I got to it before Derek got to it. <laughs> and this is a great companion to this passage of Scripture because Josephus was an eyewitness to the fall of Jerusalem. He saw this happening, and it's an incredible account. It's not Scripture, obviously, but it backs up everything Jesus is saying. Before the fall of Jerusalem, Josephus says that the temple, the temple of Herod in the time of Jesus, what it looked like was like a mountain of marble and gold. A mountain of marble and gold. He said there was so much gold and marble on this huge structure that early in the morning the sun would dance off it and it would almost blind you. It was huge. It was over 130, 150 feet high. So in those days, that's big. It was built on a platform. You know the platform you can still see today in Jerusalem. The temple was built on a platform even bigger than that. You could fit 11 and 12 football pitches on the platform that was built for the temple on Temple Mount. And the reason why the disciple draws attention to the stones, that's random, isn't it? We don't, we don't really find stones very amazing. Why would you look at this? Why not the gold? Why not the marble? Well, the reason why he drew attention to the stones was because Josephus says that some of them were 60 feet in length. 60 feet in length, 11 feet high, and eight feet deep, weighing hundreds and hundreds of tons. It was a miracle of engineering. I mean, how do you get a stone that big up onto a mountain? I, I literally don't, I don't know. But the stones were absolutely huge. And Josephus said, even by Roman standards, the, the temple in Jerusalem was a work of art. People would travel to come and see it from miles around. So the disciple was impressed and calls Jesus' attention to it. He says, look at this. What do you have to say about this, Lord? Now, Jesus, of course, is not impressed. He doesn't take a moment to say, it's incredible, isn't it? I wonder how they did it. Let's just take a moment. Have we got a chance for a selfie quickly? Jesus is not interested. He jumps straight into his prediction of its destruction. Christ is not impressed, I want to say this, with external Christianity, with veneer Christianity. He's not impressed with beautiful buildings, ambient lighting, expensive garments. Christ doesn't honor wealth or power or prestige in ministries or churches. I think often we think that he does. I, I know that nobody here would say that. And I don't think any minister would say, I believe Jesus honors wealth and prestige and power. Maybe there are some that would. But when we look out at the scape, the landscape of Western Christianity these days, American Christianity, British Christianity, certainly does look like many of us believe that Jesus honors wealth and prestige and power and beautiful golden buildings. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a nice building. The word says, doesn't it, let everything be done rightly and in order. There's nothing wrong with having a nice building or having nice equipment. But what Jesus truly honors is what's within. 
J.C. Ryle, the late Anglican bishop, said, the true glory of a church does not consist in its buildings for public worship, but in the faith and godliness of its members. Amen. Jesus says immediately that there will not be one stone left upon another, but all will be thrown down. Now that you've heard how big these stones were, you can imagine how crazy that would have sounded to his own disciples. What do you mean this 300-ton stone is going to be thrown down? Now what's interesting is you can actually see these stones today in Jerusalem. You can see the rubble of those stones, those huge stones that were literally thrown down from Temple Mount into the Kidron Valley below. There's just a, a rubble of stones that you can see there today. But none of them stand intact, and as Jesus said, none of them stand on top of another. To give you an idea of how crazy <coughs> Jesus' prediction was, and how implausible it seemed that the temple and all these buildings would be destroyed, the Roman army tried for six days to batter down just the gates to the temple. Not the stones, just the gates. And they couldn't do it. The whole Roman army with a battering them for six days couldn't do it. So it shows you what an act of God it was that this temple was not just set on fire, but literally obliterated. Not, not one stone was left on top of another. I think again as well, just an apologetic point for those of you who are interested. I think, again, we've got proof here that the Gospel of Mark was written well before the fall of Jerusalem. There are some people that like to say well, the Gospels were written much later in the first century. They were written after the fall of Jerusalem, and it's just pretend prophecy. They really knew the facts, and they were writing them back. Well, if that were the case, and you were Mark, you were writing your Gospel after the fall of Jerusalem, and you knew the facts, wouldn't you add a bit more detail? Wouldn't you like to tell your audience that Jesus predicted that the Romans would set the temple on fire first? Wouldn't you like to add a few more details just to make this prophecy look more amazing? But we get a very brief prophecy, and I think this is proof that Mark's gospel is, as many scholars believe, early, the earliest gospel. Some think even as early as 45 AD. It's 10 years after the resurrection. Part two, the birth pains. As they come out of the east entrance of the temple, they went through the Kidron Valley and up onto the Mount of Olives. Now, if you go to Jerusalem, often we think mountain and we think kind of pyramid-shaped, huge, you know, 14,000-foot thing, but that's not what the Mount of Olives is like. It's more like a hill. But it overlooks Jerusalem and you get an incredible view of Temple Mount. And there's a lot of prophetic writing attached to the Mount of Olives. In fact, it's where, it, it's where it's prophesied in the Old Testament that destruction will come upon Jerusalem. It's where the apocalypse will come from. And so there's a lot of weight attached to the fact that Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives and sits and begins to speak with his disciples. There's a kind of judgmental oracle to that. Jesus is posturing himself in the role of Messiah, presiding in judgment over the city of Jerusalem. All these things are important, aren't they? No word of Scripture is there by accident. Amen. 
All of it is the inspired word of God and is there to encourage and to speak to us. So Jesus retires to the Mount of Olives. He sat there and four of his disciples asked him, when will these things take place? And what will be the signs that all these things, tauta in the Greek, are to be accomplished? Now, what's interesting again in the account of Josephus, it was at the east gate of the temple where Jesus and his disciples were looking it was there that the Romans raised their standards and offered pagan sacrifice when they overran the temple. And Jesus is sat there on Mount of Olives looking down at the temple. You could virtually look right into the sanctuary from where they were sat. And what Jesus does is he proceeds to answer his disciples. He proceeds to answer them. They ask him, when will these things happen? What will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished? And Jesus proceeds to give them a list of things that are not imminent signs of the coming fulfillment of those things, but merely the beginning of the birth pains. Did you catch that? Wars and rumors of war, famine, nation rising against nation, false Christs, false messiahs. But he says this is not the end. This is not the end. I think it's interesting, isn't it, that these days there are many, many end times prophets on the internet, and all they do is spend their time looking for wars and rumors of wars and famines and false Christ to say, look, he's about to come, but Jesus says, no, it's not the end. These are not signs that it's about to happen, but they're just merely the beginnings of the birth pains. Now, you might say, well, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus prophesied the beginning of the birth pains. Well, I also want to say that phrase, birth pains, that phrase, birth pains, appears one other place in the New Testament, and it's in the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, if you remember, what does Paul say? He says the whole of creation is experiencing birth pains for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, how long has creation been around to experience the birth pains? It's a long, 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 that's deep time that birth pains have been happening. And so in the Bible, birth pains don't necessarily mean imminency, always. I just think that's an interesting point. But Jesus points to things that are merely the beginnings of the birth pains. He tells them of what to expect, but he instructs them also how to behave. And I think Jesus in this passage, he's more interested in how his church behaves in the waiting than in telling them about the signs of his coming. He's more interested in their behavior as they wait than in telling them the signs of his coming. I think that's very interesting. You know, in Matthew's account of this same passage, you know the parable of the ten virgins? You read that parable? About those five foolish virgins who didn't keep their lamps trimmed. They weren't ready for the bridegroom to come. That parable immediately follows this. And of course, Mark doesn't have this, but I think we could insert it. I think we could insert it. I think that's what Jesus is thinking. He's more interested in how you wait for him. 
than he is that you know the signs of his coming. He's more interested in the fact of the readiness of his church. Are you a widow, sorry, are you, are you a virgin who has their lamp trimmed, ready for him to come? That's what Christ is interested in. Not how much you know about end time prophecies, but how you wait for his return. First thing he says to them, after they ask him, tell us the signs when all these things will take place. The first thing he says to them is so strange when you think about it. It's not a direct answer, is it? He says, see that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, in the name of Jesus, saying, I am he. Now that's interesting again. In the Greek, it's not three words, I am he, it's two words. Ego, I me. Ego, I me, which in Greek is the divine name that we find in Exodus 3. I am that I am. Ego, I me. Many will come claiming to be the Messiah, but they will be false Messiahs. See that no one leads you astray. Are you on guard that no one leads you astray? I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to keep you. Don't get me wrong. But that doesn't mean you're to switch off and fly autopilot and believe everything that everybody says. Many Christians have that attitude in the West today. Well, they said they're a Christian. You know, they're speaking from the Bible. They're they're quoting Scripture when they preach. Well, Jesus says many will come in His name. And many will say, I am he. Does that mean that they are? No, not at all. We must be Bereans and question the claims of those who claim to speak for Christ. What's interesting to me in the book of Acts, with the Berean Christians, you know what I'm talking about, the Berean Christians, Acts 17, is it? Before Paul preaches in the Areopagus, these Bereans were Jews who questioned what the Apostle Paul said. The Apostle Paul was literally the representation of Christ on the earth at that point. He was one of the apostles. But he didn't mind these believers questioning what he said. I want you to let that sink in. Paul praised these believers for being diligent and discerning in what they heard. He didn't berate them for being unbelieving. He didn't berate them for being Pharisees. He didn't say, touch not the Lord's anointed. Is, this, is the penny dropping? You know, these days, if I dare to question certain preachers for their claims, I'm immediately called a Pharisee, or I'm not of the Spirit. (laughs) Or I shouldn't touch the Lord's anointing because a curse will come on me. I've been told all of this. Have you? I don't know, maybe not. But I want to say is be a Berean. Be a Berean. Test out the claims according to the Word of God. It's what we're encouraged to do. Be watchful. Be watchful. See that no one leads you astray. There are many YouTube prophets. This is the new area of deception. I want to say this. 
The new area of mass deception is YouTube pastors and TikTok prophets. It's also shareable. The content's great. Snappy, quick. But are you being a Berean? Are you watching that no one leads you astray? Not all who come in the name of Christ truly are of Christ. And Jesus says in the end times and in the first century, I've got to say again, keep your first century lenses on. Because though I'm telling you now that many will come in Christ's name now, and many will rise up and be false messiahs now, the same happened in the first century. After the crucifixion, many did rise up in the first century, claiming to be Messiah, saying, I am he, and they led many astray. That happened in the first century, maybe more than in any other century since, until now. But now again, you've got the same thing happening. We've got the same thing happening. Uh, brothers and sisters, I want you to be on your guard. I'm saying it's because it's real. I've had multiple people inbox me over the last year, claiming to be Christians, asking me to join them on a Bible study. I did my digging and did my research and found out that all of these fake Facebook accounts, usually single women, they send you inbox messages, lots of emojis, inviting you to a Bible study. God bless you. Thank you, brother. Oh, wonderful to meet you. They were all part of a cult, and they were all bots. They're part of a cult called Eastern Lightning. And they have a false messiah. They believe that Jesus has come in the form of a woman in China, and she's alive right now. And they're leading many astray. Many astray. I don't believe he can lead the elect astray, but many nominal Christians are going and having online Bible studies with these people who follow a false Christ. I think sometimes when we warn people of these things, they don't believe that these things even take place, but they really do, sadly. Now, there are also, Jesus warns of wars and rumors of wars. And that's true. And I think there's an end-time application for that as well. But in the first century, this was true. There were many wars, and nations did rise up against nations. The emperor Caligula in the first century, he drew up plans to have a statue of himself put in the temple. And of course, that didn't go down very well with the Jews. They began to complain. And at one point, it looked like war would come between Rome and Judea before AD 66, under the reign of Caligula. Eventually, the plans were scrapped, but wars and rumors of wars were par for the course in the first century. Jesus also prophesied famine before the coming of his judgment. There were also great famines in the first century. If you read in the book of Acts, Agabus the prophet actually predicts one. It says a great famine is going to come, and that actually happened, the Bible tells us, in the reign of Claudius in the first century. And it struck in Judea terribly. And so we know that these things happened also in the first century, these birth pains. They were fulfilled. There are also great earthquakes. Jesus warned of natural disasters. And that will be true in the end times, at the end of time, but also they were true at the end of the age, in the first century. There was an earthquake. We all know about the volcano that destroyed Pompeii, don't we? I think it was AD 79. But in AD 62 or 3, we don't quite know which year, there was a huge earthquake that pretty much leveled Pompeii and Herculaneum. And many believe it might have been the precursor to the volcano itself. So there were massive 
eruptions, not eruptions, massive earthquakes in the first century, just as Jesus predicted in the region of Judea. But of all these things, interestingly, Christ says this, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. These things must take place. In fact, in the Greek, it says it is necessary for them to take place. Necessary for them to take place. All these things, wars, rumors of wars, famine, earthquakes, necessary. Isn't that interesting? The Lord said that. The way most of us think about wars, rumors of wars, famines and destructions, that didn't come from God. There's no way God would ever allow that. That's from the devil. Maybe, but Jesus said they're necessary. Once again, we're seeing the absolute sovereignty of God over all the affairs of the world, including even natural disasters. Does it mean God sent that earthquake? No. But it does mean it's necessary that it should happen. There was a purpose and a point to it, ordained within God's secret, decretive world. So we're not to fret and to worry about these things going on in the world. We're not to look out, particularly in the last three years. We've had many causes to look out into the world and to be worried and be discomforted. I don't know about you, but I felt discomfort. I have sometimes worried. I've sometimes given over to anxiety, just looking out at the war in, in Europe now. We have a war in Europe. We have, we've had a, a pandemic. There are many things going on in the world that can cause us to fret, aren't there not? Many things. And there's other things that we begin to worry about because the media says, we want you to worry about this now, please. This is the new thing we want you to fret about today. Please be scared about this potential thing that could happen next year, right? There's always a reason to fret that Jesus says, do not worry. Do not worry, these things must take place. They are just the beginning of the birth place. So as Christians, we're to look out knowing that the sovereign hand of God rules over all that we see. We're to look out and not fret, knowing that there is a necessity behind all of these things, even if we can't see it. Even if we can't imagine how this thing could possibly work for good in God's purposes, we're to trust and believe that they do, even if we don't understand. And finally... Final passage tells us about the state of the church in these end times. Both at the end of the age in the first century and speaking forth to the end of time, to the end time church, I believe. Jesus begins verse 9 by saying something really interesting. After giving them all the signs, after telling them the things that will happen at the beginning of the birth pains for his coming in judgment, he tells them this. Guard yourselves. In the Greek, it literally says, but you watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. Take watch over yourselves. Are we taking up a guard over ourselves today? Are we watchful over the condition of our hearts, over what's coming into our minds, over what we are watching, over the company that we are keeping? Are we watchful? Are we prayerful? It's another word that comes to mind when we read of that watchfulness. Are we prayerful Christians today? Jesus commands us, take up a guard over yourselves. And this section here, verses 9 to 13, reads like an outline to the book of Acts, doesn't it? If you were going to summarize what happens in the book of Acts, 
You do it this way. It's exactly what happens in Acts. Jesus predicts it. You'll be handed over to councils. You'll be flogged. You'll be beaten. You'll speak before kings. Of course, we know Paul spoke before King Agrippa, didn't he? Jesus predicts the book of Acts. He also predicts a time of extreme persecution. Extraordinary persecution. To the point where family members will hand over other family members to be persecuted, even killed. And this happened in the first century. Under the emperor Nero, there was a great persecution that broke out in the early church. And we know from history that Christians were thrown to wild beasts. We know that they were crucified along the Appian Way. We know that there's a rumor, even, I say rumor, there's a, a story of Nero actually burning Christians, using them as giant candles in his garden. But what we do know is there was a great persecution that broke out amongst the Roman church. And we know that it got so bad that not all Christians were able to stand up under the weight of it. We know from church history that though some did go to their deaths for what they believed, some were martyred, not all were. Not all were. Some tattled on their friends. Some denied what they'd made a confession of faith for. Others ratted out their family in order to try and save their own lives. And there was a great discussion in the early church about what was to be done with those Christians who had done that. It was called the Lapsy Crisis, or the Lapsy issue, whatever you want to say, but what do we do with these Christians who have capitulated under pressure? Should we allow them back in to the church? This was a great debate in the early church. Such was the persecution that they experienced, and I think is so alien to us today. We haven't had to experience this, have we? But I think this prophecy does speak of the first century, but I do think that it is a foreshadowing of the end times and that the end time church will be a persecuted church and that we're to ready ourselves and steal ourselves for times again like that. Just as persecution preceded Christ's coming in judgment upon Jerusalem, and I want, I want to use that phrase, and in the next few times we study this passage, you'll see more and more that that's what is happening here, that Christ, in a sense, returned in judgment upon Jerusalem in AD 70. Didn't return in the flesh to judge, but there is definitely an element of his judgment upon Jerusalem in AD 70 for their rejection of him. And just as persecution of the church preceded that coming, so too persecution of the church will precede his final coming. That's my belief. I think these days it's not something that is often talked about in the church. There's a view these days that, you know, Become a Christian and everything's going to work out fine and dandy. You know, you become rich, you become prosperous, you become successful, and if you're not, then you're doing something wrong. But it's just simply not, what, not what's promised by Christ. Anyway, or the prophets. In fact, we read in Acts 9, 15 and 16, one of my favorite passages, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, speaking of Paul, and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much I will bless him for my name. 
how much financial prosperity I'll bring into his life. No, I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Christianity, being a Christian, being a part of the church of Jesus Christ, of necessity means that you will suffer. It means that the world will not embrace you and celebrate you and love you as a Christian. But that's okay. That's expected. And we're not to worry. All these things are necessary. And as Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Many of us in the Christian race, we come out the blocks fast. Maybe. We make a dart at the front straight, but on the back straight, we begin to feel it. There are others who start slow, but over time, they build up more confidence. But what's most important is not how quickly you're running as a Christian, but whether you finish the race. It's one of my favorite stories from the Olympics ever is the story of Derek Redmond. The 90, 1992 uh, Barcelona Olympics, Redmond was in the 200-meter race or 400-meter race, I can't remember which. 400 hurdles, thank you. And he came out of the blocks, he was doing really well. But just around the first bend, I believe, his hamstring went and he was unable to carry on. But after a while, Redmond got to his feet and he began hopping, hopping towards the finish line. And as he did that, his dad came over, threw his arm around his shoulder and walked with his son to the finish line. All the while, there were officials coming over and saying, you've got to come off the track, please bring him off the track. And Derek Redmond's dad was pushing him away. Go away, we're going to finish this race. That's a picture of what Jesus is talking about. Those who endure till the end. Doesn't matter if you cross that line limping. Doesn't matter if you need help. What matters is that you cross the line. I'm going to invite everyone up in the band. Let's, let's stand together. And I want to just take a moment to really just minister into that. Maybe some of you are limping in your walk with the Lord. Maybe you, you feel a bit like Derek Redmond today. What matters is not how fast you're running, but are you still going? Are you still moving forwards? Maybe some of you need to look at the example of Derek Redmond's dad. Maybe you could get alongside somebody you know is struggling, throw an arm around their shoulder as a Christian, Pray for them. Offer to meet up with them. Have coffee. Encourage them. Send them a text. Spurring them on. Maybe you can be a Derek Redmond's dad. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus. And it is through him and through him alone that we are able to complete this race. It's through grace alone that we enter and through grace alone that we, we exit and we finish. And we pray today, Lord, that your grace might be upon this church powerful today for those who feel like they're limping, for those who feel like they're making slow progress. Lord, we pray an abundant outpouring of your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit 
to give us the strength to keep on going. Lord, we pray for those maybe who have lain down and fallen asleep on the back straight. Lord, we pray that you might wake us up, rouse us and stir us to finish this race. And Father, we pray that you might give us the energy to run. Lord, to put one foot in front of the other and run that race with endurance. Looking to the prize. Looking to being with you for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let's sing together. Amen.